delight to be with you again this evening. Uh, it, this this uh, area of study is just fascinating to, to think through the, the Bible of the work of the Spirit as He worked in the Old Testament and then the contrast, the significant increase that happens in the New Testament. And that's where we're going to be moving tonight, but not directly to us. Uh, this evening, we're going to look at the, the work of the Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. I hope you have the handout for tonight, do you? All of you, anybody lacking it? Any hand, hands up if you are lacking it? You're okay? All right. Okay, it should be session two, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, let me add one thing to the introduction that's there, so this is not on the notes there. It, it just occurred to me to, to think with you about the fact that in the Old Testament, when you find God promising uh, this future day that's going to come when He's going to restore all things, when He's going to bring righteousness to the people of God and peace to the land and so on, this day of coming restoration. And if you ask the question of these Old Testament passages, these promises, what will God do to bring that to pass? You find there are really three answers to that in the Old Testament. One set of passages uh, w would say that, that God will do that by sending Messiah. When Messiah comes, He will... He will bring restoration to the land. He will conquer the enemies of Israel. He will bring righteousness to His people. I mean, a passage like Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, uh, for, uh, a child will be born, a son will be given, uh, and the, the government will be upon His shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government, there will be no end uh, to uphold it and, and to, uh, uh, to, to see it fulfilled uh, as is the, the fulfillment of the King of David. Uh, and this will, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And so this work of, uh, uh, of restoration will happen when he sends Messiah. But then another set of passages indicate that he will do this when he sends the Spirit. We saw some of those last night. Uh, let me remind you just of Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will be my people. I will be your God. So you think, oh, well, God's going to, do this work of restoration when He sends the Messiah and when He sends the Spirit, well, which one is it? Well, the answer is it's both. And so the third set of passages is He will accomplish this work of restoration when He sends the Messiah with the Holy Spirit. And so indeed, Jesus comes as the Spirit-anointed Messiah first to live the life He was called to live, to accomplish the work He was called to accomplish as the second Adam, as the son of David, as a man living in the power of the Spirit, who then, once He accomplished His work, would then hand over the Spirit to us. So we then become the recipients of that Spirit who had lived in and through Jesus in His life and ministry. So in a sense, when we look at Jesus, we see the prototype of how we should live, of the Spirit-filled life, of the new covenant life, what it looks like, we see this perfectly manifest in Jesus. Okay, now let me come to, to the handout under introduction. I have two things I want to mention here. First is this. There are clearly two themes in the New Testament regarding Jesus and the Spirit. On the one hand, Jesus relies on the Spirit in doing His work, in performing His miracles, and in giving His life. And we'll look at a number of passages that indicate that. On the other hand, 
he also exercises his authority over the Spirit and proclaims that the Spirit whom he will send will glorify him. So you see, on the one hand, Jesus relies on the Spirit. On the other hand, Jesus has authority over the Spirit, sends the Spirit, tells the Spirit what he will do. And, uh, and it's really interesting because you realize that first set of passages that, that speak of Jesus relying upon the Spirit, this has to be then in regard to his life as the Messiah, as the one who has come as the second Adam, who takes on our human nature. And so, indeed, living as a man requires the Spirit. But his eternal relationship as Son of the Father is one in which he has authority over the Spirit and sends the Spirit and, and directs the Spirit what to do. And I, you know, I, I came to this understanding that I'm presenting to you this evening that's also in the book that, the, that your church uh, kindly provided for you, uh, The Man Christ Jesus. That's, that's uh, this section of the conference uh, in much greater detail in that book. But I came to this understanding largely by two questions that plagued me for the longest time. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know if you've learned this, that questions are oftentimes your best friends, not your enemies. You know, his questions are kind of uh, uh, a nuisance sometimes. You know, we wish we didn't have unanswered questions, but actually difficult questions that we don't know the answers to. When we do see the answers, oftentimes it opens up a realm of reality we had no idea existed before. Well, that was true for me. Here are the two questions that uh, led me to, to think about this issue in the way we are this evening. The first one is this, why would Jesus, who is the God-man, why would he need to have the Spirit of God upon him? What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? And indeed, there is an answer to that question. What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? Nothing. Nothing. The deity of Christ is infinitely full, infinitely full has omnipotence, has omniscience, uh, is, is, has all the qualities of God. So indeed, the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus, you might think, is superfluous, is really unnecessary. And yet the Bible makes so much of the fact that the Spirit came upon Jesus. Here's the second question. How can Jesus, in his sinless obedience and sacrificial service, rightly be upheld as a model for how we should live since he was the God-man and we are not? I remember having this question when I was probably about 12 or 13 years old. I grew up in a Christian home, and in the church that I was in, our pastor had encouraged us to read our Bibles more, so I was doing that. And I was reading in 1 Peter and came to 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says that we're to follow in his steps, Jesus' steps, who committed no sin. That's the very next phrase. We are to follow in his steps who committed no sin. And I remember dropping my Bible on my lap, looking up as if looking up to God and saying, that's not fair. How, how can you call me and us to live like Jesus when he was God and I'm not? Well, you know what? There's an answer to both of these questions. And, and the answer uh, really apply, applies to both of them together. And that is, we need to realize that though Jesus was fully God, and we don't want to compromise that for one moment. Indeed, he was God incarnate, but nonetheless, he took on full human nature and he lived his life as a genuine man. Just as we are human beings, he lived his life out of his human nature in accomplishing the work 
in, in, in fulfilling the life we were called to live but failed to live, he lived it perfectly. In, in giving himself as a substitute for us, he had to be a man to do that. And so, indeed, he lived his life as a man in the power of the Spirit. So, think of these two questions with me again. Uh, what can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? Nothing. But what can the Spirit of God add to the humanity of Christ? Ah, everything supernatural. Indeed, he relied upon what was given to him. Now, this is stealing thunder from later on this evening. He relied upon the resources, the Spirit given to him, which resource is then given to us. Isn't that amazing? So that brings up the second question. How can Jesus rightly be upheld as an example for how we should live when he was the God-man and we're not? Well, because he lived his life as a man, using resources given to him in his humanity. And those resources are ours also. So indeed, he really is an example. We really should follow in his steps. We really should have the mind of Christ, as Paul says in Philippians 2. So, let's look at what the Bible teaches about Jesus living his life in the power of the Spirit, uh, beginning now under Roman numeral 2. Jesus' reliance upon the Spirit, and this was to fulfill his role as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. The Son fully relies upon the direction and empowerment of the Spirit. The humility of the Son is shown not only in the kenosis, that is, the emptying of Christ and taking on our human nature, but also in placing Himself in reliance upon the Spirit's leading and empowerment, the one over whom He, as God the Son, has authority. And we see this anticipated in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah chapter 11 on your handout here. You can turn to it if you wish as well, but it's on your handout. Verses 1 and 2. The prophet Isaiah says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who is Jesse? David's father. Okay, so th this then is a, is a clue that what we're going to be talking about here is a promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7 that David would have a son who would reign upon his throne forever. That, that promise, that is called the Davidic covenant, that promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 plays a very significant role in many of the prophecies that are recorded in the prophets of Israel as they look forward to the coming of the Messiah. He will come as the one who comes as in the line of David. So here, here is another one of these, but referring to David's father, Jesse. So a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now notice in verse 2, I, I want to ask you two questions here. Num number one is this. When you think of the life and ministry of Jesus, is it evident that Jesus exhibited wisdom in how he dealt with people. Would you say it, it is? Yeah? I mean, what, what kinds of things come to your mind? Well, if this was a classroom, we, we could entertain these. It's a little more difficult in this context. Pardon me? What's the greatest commandment? So the wisdom that Christ had in dealing with that question. 
you, th you think of Jesus and his dealing with the Pharisees more broadly. Goodness, they finally quit asking him questions because they knew that they would get the worst of it, you know. Uh, th think of Jesus with Nicodemus, uh, Jesus with the Samaritan woman. I mean, such wisdom was exhibited. Okay, question number two. According to Isaiah 11, verse 2, how did Jesus have such wisdom? You see it? By the Spirit. Now, I, I think most of us evangelicals ha have been taught to think in terms of the deity of Christ so much that we really don't figure in, we don't, we, we don't account for the true humanity of Christ. And here is a case where it's very clear that the wisdom that Jesus had that He would use in His teaching and so on would come as the Spirit illumined His mind, as the Spirit brought to Him understanding of the Scriptures. We'll see more on this in just a bit. And, and enabled Him to have the wisdom that He had. It was in the power of the Spirit. So indeed, you know, you just, you just realize, boy, this, this is a different way of thinking that we have been thought, we, we have been taught in many cases. I think what has happened in evangelicalism is we have had to defend the deity of the Spirit so much that what has happened is when we think of Christ, we think deity, and we, when we hardly even uh, uh, consider His humanity in this. But indeed, the humanity of Christ is what is put on full display in most of the life and ministry of Jesus. So, here, here's a passage that indicates this is the way it will be when He comes. Now, moving on, many of these are in the book of Luke. It's interesting, Luke and Acts, written by the same author, Luke, both emphasize the role of the Spirit uh, in the early chapters of Luke in Jesus and the early chapters of the book of Acts as the Spirit then comes to us. But uh, Luke records uh, the, the, the time when Jesus is conceived by the Spirit. The angel Gabriel came to Mary, Luke 1.32, and uh, he said this to her, he, this one that will be born of you, will be called great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. There's that Davidic covenant again, that promise in 2 Samuel 7. He will have the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So obviously, this passage does refer to the miracle that happens in Mary by which she is able to conceive this baby, this child, without a human father. She remains a virgin until after Jesus is born. And then she has other children through Joseph later. But she's a virgin. She has no sexual relationships with a man, and yet she's able to conceive a child. How can this be? Because the Holy Spirit comes upon her to perform this miracle of bringing together of conception in her womb by which the deity and humanity of Christ are joined inseparably together at the conception. So he is conceived and born, one who is both fully God and fully man. This is what C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle. And indeed, this is. This trumps everything else, uh, the, the miracle that occurred in the incarnation. But I think there's more to this than, than the Holy Spirit's role in bringing about this miraculous 
incarnation of the God-man. I think also it, there's a subtle indication here that, that Jesus received the Spirit within his own life at his conception. So he is born into this world as one who is filled with the Spirit. And I think you see that in the language that's used in verse 35, where the angel Gabriel, Gabriel uh, repeats the word holy. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will, will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child will become the Son of God. And I think that repetition is to signal Holy Spirit invades, as it were, comes within this child, so the Holy Spirit makes this child holy. Of course, at the bare minimum, this means that he is born sinless. And of course, that's true. But I think it's more than merely sinlessness. It is that he has the Holy Spirit upon him. Now, think with me. Here are some other reasons for thinking that this is the case. John the Baptist, you might remember, had the Holy Spirit upon him from when? This is in Luke 1.15. While still in his mother's womb. So indeed, John is born into this world with the Holy Spirit upon him. John, who is merely the forerunner of Messiah, well, why not Messiah having the Spirit upon him? Certainly, if the forerunner of Messiah has the Spirit upon him, even more so the Messiah. That's one argument. Another one is this. If you think biblically, what would be the other likely time that you might point to for when the Holy Spirit would come upon Christ? The baptism, right? The baptism. And we'll come to the baptism passage here in just a moment. But there's two problems with that as the time when the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. The first one is this. The first problem is that means Jesus went from zero to 30 years old without sin without the Holy Spirit. And so the question is, how did he live a sinless, perfect life for 30 years? That means he went through adolescence. I mean, that you know, you just think of this. Uh, how do you get from zero to 30, perfect, sinless? Uh, well, I, I think what you would end up doing is defaulting to the view that he lived his life out of his deity. But then, my friends, the problem with that is he didn't really live as the second Adam with the life that Adam had, you know, a nature as Adam had. He had a tremendous advantage. He had the divine nature by which he was able to live his life. So that really does undercut our conviction that when Jesus came, he lived our life perfectly. So that's, that's one problem with that. But then here's the other problem is, if he lived his life perfectly until the age of 30, now he receives the Spirit, what's the point? He's been doing just fine. What, 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 why does the Spirit come upon him now? So th there really does not seem to be a good answer for those questions. I think it's far better to say that the Holy Spirit came upon him at his conception. And so he was born, just like John was born, with the Holy Spirit upon him so that he worked within him from the very beginning of his life and ministry. And I think a third argument for that uh, involves the next passage in our outline here. Luke chapter 2, verses 40 and 52 are bookends around the, the only account we have in the Gospels of Jesus' life as a young person, as a boy growing up. And you remember that account 
involves Jesus' parents taking Jesus down to Jerusalem uh, from Nazareth up in the north. They came down, came to Jerusalem for his dedication at the temple. And you remember how the story goes. After that took place, they head back home and uh, they realize, oops, someone's not with them. We left Jesus back in Jerusalem. You've never done that, have you? You know, when you stop for gas at, uh, along the freeway and you take off and, where's Billy? You know, oh my goodness, we got to go back and get him. So, so Jesus' parents are heading back to Jerusalem to get Jesus, and they find him, of all places, where? In the temple, conversing with the teachers of the law in the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, these are the PhDs of the PhDs of the day. You don't get people smarter, more knowledgeable of the Old Testament Scriptures. I mean, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law at the temple in Jerusalem would have had a vast majority of the Old Testament memorized. And yet, we read in Luke's Gospel that they were astonished at the words Jesus was saying. Ah, so here's the question. How was Jesus able to astonish the teachers of the law in Jerusalem by the things that he was saying? A lot of evangelicals, I I just know this, uh, kind of the typical answer is going to be, well, he was God. But you know what? Luke indicates that's not the right answer. Not that he wasn't God, indeed he was, but look, look at what Luke says in Luke 2, verses 40 and 52. Again, these verses are the brackets around or the bookends around that story of Jesus as a boy. Verse 40 we read, The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then verse 52 at the end of that story, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now I propose to you that the phrase increasing in wisdom is altogether inappropriate to say of God. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, God is infinitely wise. He doesn't learn things moment by moment. Uh, he, he, he knows everything, and He has for eternity. He does not increase in wisdom. He, he doesn't look back and go, wow, you know, the way I did that back then, I just re- realized now that wasn't the best way. I mean, that never happens with God. Praise be to God, it never happens. We never have to doubt the wisdom of God. So this has to refer then what to what? To his human nature. So just as he matured physically, isn't that the point of he, he grew in stature, right? So as he grew physically, he also grew in his inner life as a, as a boy growing up. He, he matured in his inner life bit by bit. The grace of God was upon him. I think that's a, another way of speaking of the Spirit of God who was at work in him. And so you realize then that Jesus, the, the, the adult Jesus that we come to see through most of the Gospels, you know, beginning as, in his ministry at 30 years old, that adult Jesus did not know those Scriptures automatically. That, that 12-year-old boy did not know the Scriptures automatically. He rather had learned them. He had grown in wisdom over time. I mean, I have no doubt that Psalm 1 was selected to be Psalm 1 
You know, the Psalter is largely Christological, right? It, it, it has a, a forward-pointing look at, to, to point to Christ, at least many of the Psalms do. And certainly Psalm 1 is in that category. But Psalm 1 is not principally about a righteous man and a wicked man. It's about the righteous man who is in contrast to all the wicked, right? The righteous man. Who is this righteous man? Well, one who loves the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night so that he is like a tree planted by streams of water. And, and his leaf does not wither and, 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 and he produces fruit in its season. So indeed, this describes Jesus who loved the law of the Lord, meditated upon it, learned it, no doubt from his parents. No, no doubt they were Deuteronomy 6 parents, you know, who taught him the Scriptures and so on. So you realize Jesus grew in his understanding through his life uh, until he was prepared to be able to face the mission that, that the Father had sent him to do when he was 30 years old. I, I've thought about this so many times. If this is, if this is the way we should see things, then there must have been a day, a time in Jesus' early life when he was meditating through the Psalms and he came to Psalm 22, which, of course, we know he knew that Psalm. That's the one that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew that Psalm, right? Well, he came to Psalm 22 and the Holy Spirit would illumine his mind to understand as he read that Psalm, this Psalm is about me. This is describing the tor torment I will go through, but the ultimate victory I will have. That's also in Psalm 92. I'm sorry, 22. The ultimate victory that he will have. And so he realized this is about me. This is my mission. This is why I'm here. Same thing, you know, meditating through Isaiah. He refers to passages in Isaiah often. And I, when he came to Isaiah 53... Can you imagine meditating through that chapter and the Spirit confirming in his own mind, yes, you are the suffering servant who will bear the sins of others, who will take upon yourself their affliction, you, you, and you will take upon yourself the wrath of your Father. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Oh, my goodness. I mean, no wonder he cried out uh, before Gethsemane, uh, my God, my God, I mean, uh, uh, Father, if you be willing, let this cup pass from me. He knew the wrath of the Father that was about to happen in his own life. So, indeed, he grew in wisdom as a boy growing up. Now, the next reference we have to Jesus and the Spirit is the baptism of Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So at the baptism of Jesus, you might wonder, what is this, this spirit coming upon him then, uh, and what does that symbolize? Well, I think it's a couple of things. One is, it's very clear uh, in John's gospel that the father told John, the one upon whom you see the spirit of God descend in the form of a dove, that's my son, right? So follow him. So indeed, there was a sense of empirical confirmation to the people that this is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited uh, Son of David who has come, and that's confirmed by the fact that the Spirit came upon him. 
I think something else happens in this, though, as well. And that is, we notice in both Old Testament and in New Testament that the Spirit can come upon people for uh, empowering for certain work that God wants them to do. I mean, we saw that last night in a number of passages. You think of the judges, for example, how the Spirit of God would come upon Gideon or, or Samson, and they would be able to face things uh, with, with great courage because the Spirit was upon them in, in, a, in a way that would anoint them, empower them for a mission, for a work that God had to do. That same kind of thing happens in the book of Acts, where Peter, who, who received the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, but then in, cha- in chapter 4, he's filled with the Spirit and he speaks with boldness. So it's not as though he didn't have the Spirit already, but the Spirit comes upon him for this work that God has for him to do. So I think this is likely what happens in the baptism of Jesus, that the Spirit comes upon Jesus in a new way, in anointing him for the mission he is about to undertake. Do you remember what happens immediately after his baptism? His temptation in the wilderness. So indeed, he is facing the enemy square on. And and indeed, the Spirit empowers him as he goes about that work. So, after the baptism then, he does uh, go to the wilderness. We read this in in Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And in Mark's gospel, the account is even stronger. It says immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. So there's this sense of of the necessity that he face the devil. And you know, it's interesting. When you look at the temptations that Jesus experienced, uh, as recorded in Luke chapter 4, there are three of them, right? Do you remember that? Three temptations that Satan confronts him with. And it's interesting because... They parallel exactly the three ways that the woman looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as recorded in Genesis 3.6. She saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. Well, you take those three categories of temptation and they overlay Luke chapter 4. And so, at least in my mind, what this is indicating is the second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. He faced the same temptations, even great, a greater expression of those temptations, and yet he obeyed the Father. So much so that we read in Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. So indeed, I, I think the point of that, he's re, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Why? Because he had relied upon the Spirit, he had not violated his, his trust uh, that the Father had given him, he obeyed the Father, he accomplished the, the, successfully the resisting of temptation, and so the Spirit's empowerment in his life was not diminished. It wasn't quenched. Uh, it, it, it in no way was diminished. It was in full force because he was obedient. And then, uh, reading on a bit more in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus uh, comes back to his hometown in Nazareth where he, he had been brought up. We read this, that he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. 
And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them the most amazing thing you could imagine. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I who stand before you am none other than the fulfillment of this promise from Isaiah, uh, the Messiah who would come in the power of the Spirit. So isn't it interesting that they hand him, notice again in verse 17, they hand him the, uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah, probably a scroll that would contain chapters 40 to 66. This is most likely. I've seen these scrolls in Israel myself where the book of Isaiah, because it's so long, they would have chapters 1 to 39 in one scroll and then 40 to 66 in another scroll just, just because it's not as cumbersome as one huge one would be. So likely they handed him the, the section of Isaiah 40 to 66. And, and he turned evidently to the place that he wanted to read. That's, that's what's indicated in that verse. He found the place where it said, and so it looks like this is his choice for the Scripture reading. And you know, in that section, he could have turned instead to Isaiah 53, and he could have read to them about the suffering servant, and you wonder why he wouldn't do that. Why wouldn't he talk to them about what he had come to do in, in terms of providing himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the people? And I think the answer is this. They need to understand first who he is before they can comprehend what he came to do, right? And who he is is described in Isaiah, in Isaiah 61. He is the Spirit-anointed Messiah. How, how do we know that He is the Messiah? He comes with a Spirit upon Him. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 that confirms He's the one who has the Spirit upon Him to preach, to proclaim the Word in the power of the Spirit. Now, not only did He preach in the power of the Spirit, but He performed miracles in the power of the Spirit. Look with me at Matthew 12, 28. This is the context here, is where Jesus had cast out a demon and, and healed this boy. The Pharisees had said, oh, he casts out demons by, do you remember? He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So he casts out demons by Satan, is essentially what they're saying. So Jesus corrects them in verse 28, and he says this, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, notice two things about this. First of all, it's very clear, isn't it? He does not say, if I cast out demons by my own divine power, right, as, as God, he doesn't say that. He rather says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. So this is the man, Christ Jesus, in the power of the Spirit who casts out this demon. But here's the second thing. Notice the end of that statement. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then... The kingdom of God has come upon you. What's the connection? Well, it's this. How, how do you know that he is the king of the, of the promised kingdom? He will have, the king will have the spirit upon him. So indeed, the, the Old Testament is full of this, that the promised son of David who will come, this coming Messiah who will come, what's the mark of being the, of, of being the Messiah? He will have the spirit upon him. So if I cast out demons by the spirit, Guess who I am? The coming king, and guess what I'm bringing into this world? The coming kingdom, because I am the king of that kingdom. 
So this is confirmed also. That is that Jesus did these miracles in the power of the Spirit. Also in these next two passages, both of them statements by Peter, which I find just fascinating because Peter was the closest disciple to Jesus and, and uh, the one who saw the most, uh, experienced the most, and, 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 knew, and knew Jesus was God. I mean, Peter, Peter worshipped Jesus. He knew he was God. He, P- Peter was with uh, Thomas on that day after the resurrection of Christ, recorded in John chapter 20, when, when Jesus appeared into the room and said to doubting Thomas, you remember? Come, Thomas, touch my hands and my sides. Be not unbelieving, but believing. And, and, and uh, Thomas then replied, my Lord and my God, Right? Peter was there. He knows Jesus is God. But if you ask Peter the question, how did he live his life? How did he perform his miracles? Here's here's going to be his answer. Acts 2.22, this is on the day of Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man, noticed, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So indeed, it's clear to Peter that it is his humanity that is working to bring about these miracles, but not his humanity in itself. He couldn't do that, but relying upon the power of God within him. And of course, that must be the Spirit, because that's the Spirit who has indwelt him. This is very clear in Acts 10.38. Another statement by Peter This to Cornelius when he brings the gospel to the Gentiles in chapter 10 of the book of Acts. And he has a one-verse summary of the life and ministry and miracles of Jesus. And he says this. This is Peter speaking to Cornelius. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Isn't that amazing? So indeed, filled with the Spirit in order to accomplish these works that he did. And of course, that went all the way to the cross, Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So how is Jesus in the end able to offer himself? You know, you think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, just, just crying out, uh, pleading with the Father to take this cup from him. How could he then say, not my will, but yours be done, and go to the cross? He offered himself up by the eternal Spirit. The Spirit empowered him to go to the cross to the very end. And then, of course, the Spirit raises him from the dead. Uh, Romans eight eleven. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. So indeed, we, we have confidence, we have confidence, will be raised because the very same Spirit who raised Jesus will raise us. So the Spirit enabled Jesus to go to the cross, raised Him from the dead. Now you might think, once that's done, once His earthly ministry is over and He's now raised from the dead, That's it for the work of the Spirit in the life of Christ, right? Wrong. It's amazing. It continues. Well, here's my question for you. How long is the promised son of David going to reign as king over Israel, according to 2 Samuel 7? He will reign upon the throne of David forever. Well, if he's going to be the Messiah, the second 
the, the, the son of David, the second Adam, who reigns upon that throne, that means he's going to be human. So how long does he need the Spirit upon him? Forever. How long do we have the Spirit upon us? Forever. So indeed, we, we see after his resurrection uh, a clear indication that he is still teaching in the power of the Spirit. So in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, here's what we see. This is, this is Luke uh, who wrote the book of Acts. He says, the first account, referring to the, the gospel of Luke, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven after he had, notice, by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. You see it? What orders are these that he gave to the apostles? That's the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. So here's the resurrected Christ giving orders to his apostles. And how does he give those orders? According to Luke 1, verse 2. I'm sorry, Acts 1, verse 2. By the Spirit he does this. So indeed, the Spirit continues to work upon Jesus to accomplish the work that he, uh, that he did and, and speak the words that he did as well. Okay, now, let, let me just uh, take a couple areas of Jesus' own life and think with you about this idea that he lived his life in the power of the Spirit. The first one of these is in relation to temptation. How did Jesus resist temptation? And I think many of us do not look at him as a true example for how we should live because, again, we think of Jesus as God and hence he wasn't really tempted, not really, not like we are. But indeed he was, and he resisted temptation in a way that we can emulate. We, we, can, we can model what he did uh, because we have the Spirit upon us as well. There has been a long-standing doctrine in the church that's called the impeccability of Christ. It, it comes from a, a Latin term, pacara, which means to sin. And impeccable simply means that not only, did Je- uh, not only is it the case that Jesus did not sin, it is also the case that he could not sin. And I hold this view. I stand with a, with a long tradition in the church. Some have given this up in recent years. Uh, I won't talk about those people with you right now, but some have given it up. And the main reason people give it up is because it's hard to reconcile the genuineness of his temptations with he could not sin, right? That's not an easy thing to put together, though, though what I'm going to explain to you is a way to do that. Uh, but so some have given it up. But I think it's important to hang on to the doctrine of impeccability that Jesus not only did not sin, but he could not sin. So here, here are some features that we have to hold together in explaining the temptations of Christ. The first one is that Jesus indeed was sinless. This is absolutely clear in the Bible. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us. Uh, Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.21, follow in his steps who committed no sin. So indeed, the Bible is clear that Jesus never once ever sinned. Secondly, he was genuinely tempted. I mean, we, we see this in Luke chapter 4 where he, the Spirit takes him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he's facing the very things that Adam faced in the Garden of Eden. And, and indeed, he was tempted. Hebrews 4.15 says, 
He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So the, the temptations are genuine. Third, Jesus was impeccable. Now here, here's, what I, here's what I have in mind for why I think this is the case, that he, he could not sin. And, and this is because he is born. Remember in Luke 135, so the holy child born of you will be called the Son of God. He's born holy. And we know from the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1 and in Hebrews 13, 8, that he is immutable. Immutable meaning unchangeable. But of course, there are many things that change in Jesus. He grows in wisdom. He grows in stature, right? So what can we focus on in Jesus that is likely immutable? Because his mind develops. He, he, he learns things. He, he grows in lots of ways. What would it be that is immutable in Jesus? And in my mind, the only answer that works to that question is his character. He cannot change in his character. He is holy. He is pure. He, 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 he has a sinless character, and that cannot change. I mean, if that's not true of Jesus, I don't know what immutability would refer to then. Uh, because it's not he's immutable as a baby. No, he grows. It's not immutable in his mind. No, he, he grows in wisdom. So indeed, I think that's the case. Here, here's another thought on why impeccability uh, is likely the case. This is a little, a little more uh, philosophical, so hang in there with me on it. Are you ready? Okay, here it is. It's difficult to imagine how Jesus could have sinned, if that happened. Of course, it didn't. But it's, it's hard to imagine how he could have sinned without that sin implicating, polluting his divine nature. In other words, how could he have sinned just in his human nature so that his divine nature wasn't involved at all. Now, you might think, well, there are things that he does just in his human nature when he's thirsty. You know, I thirst. Well, that's just his human nature. But the reason that is is because there's nothing in his divine nature that corresponds to thirst. When he's tired, he sleeps in the boat. Uh, that's just in his human nature. There's nothing in his divine nature that corresponds to tiredness. Isn't that amazing? You know, but it's true. It, it never, is, never is the case with God that he's ever tired. And, and, and so on. So all the things that you can think of that Jesus does just in his humanity, those, those do not correspond to anything in his divine nature. And so there's no implication, no, no polluting of his divine nature because they're exclusively in his human nature. But if he were to sin, that is a moral action is there anything in the divine nature that corresponds to morality? Oh my, yes, the moral nature of God. And so I cannot imagine how that sin could take place without the, the involvement, as it were, of His divine nature, and there you sacrifice the very doctrine of God. So I'm, I'm not willing uh, to give up impeccability. I think it's a very important thing uh, to understand. So, how, how should we understand then his temptations? We'll consider these four things. The fourth one will be the most important, all right? Just to let you know. But the other three are significant. Four things to consider. The first one, he was really tempted in all things as we are, and this cannot be jeopardized. So, we don't solve this problem by saying, well, he wasn't really tempted. Oh, yes, he was. And, and Hebrews says, in every way as we are, which, which by the way, cannot mean... When, when Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in every way as we are, that cannot mean he was tempted with every specific temptation every specific person is tempted with. That's impossible. 
I mean, we're tempted today with technological things that didn't exist 100 years ago, much less 2,000 years ago. Uh, women are tempted in certain ways that are distinctive to them, men in certain ways that are distinctive to them, an alcoholic is, dis- is tempted differently than a non-alcoholic, and on and on. It's impossible for one person to be tempted with every specific temptation that every person is tempted with. So it rather has to be categories in every way, in every, in every way in which we are tempted, every category of temptation. Uh, he's tempted with the same things that we are. I mean, things like noticing that the categories in Genesis 3 are then repeated in Luke chapter 4, those categories of temptation. Uh, or the same kind of thing that Paul has in mind in 1 Tim- Corinthians 10, 13, where he says, no temptation has, has taken you, that, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But that common to man idea means we all experience the same kinds of temptation. And that's true for Christ as well. Secondly, because he never succumbed to temptation, he experienced temptation's full force. And I think this is just a really significant point to ponder. Why is it so often that we yield to temptation. Not every time, but why, why does this, what, what is one of the reasons we oftentimes give in to temptation? Because it is easier to give in than to keep fighting, right? You think of that juicy bit of gossip that you've been holding back, you know, you, you want so badly to say it, and, and, but you, you're trying really hard not to say it. Well, goodness, the pressure's off the minute you just say it right? You don't feel that pressure anymore. And you could say that with so many different sins that would take place. Imagine Jesus, who never, ever once gave in to temptation. And so he felt temptation's full force all the way through, every time, coming out the end of it successful, having resisted it. So honestly, we will never know the fullness of the temptation Jesus experienced because We give in, and he didn't. Here's a third thing to keep in mind. Because Satan knew how much was at stake in Jesus' obedience, namely uh, the salvation of us and uh, the restoration of all things, goodness, the, the whole new creation, because Satan knew how much was at stake in Jesus' obedience, his temptation of Jesus would have been more severe and relentless than with any other person. I mean, well, you just know that is the case. He is after him with greater fervor, great, greater consistency than with any other person. I mean, J- Satan knew the answer to this question. How many sins does it take to make a sinner? Yeah, he knew that. All it takes is one time. And so he would be after him at every opportunity to get that one sin that would then end the whole uh, of, of the, the work of Christ to bring about our salvation. But here's the last answer. This is the most important one as it relates to the question of how could he have been genuinely tempted and yet not be able to sin. It is to appeal to a distinction between why it is that Christ could not sin and why it is he did not swim. I'm sorry, sin. I looked at my illustration coming up in a moment here. A distinction between why it is Christ did not sin and why it is he could not sin. Now, could not sin, you probably know my answer to that already from what I said. Why is it Christ could not sin? He's God. 
He's God, and because he's God, uh, he, he cannot sin because that sin would implicate the divine nature, and, and hence that's, in, that's an impossibility. And, and some people think that that's the same answer for the question, why is it he did not sin? He relied upon his divine nature, but I'm convinced that is not the case. Rather, he did not sin for a very different reason for why he, from why he could not sin, namely, because he was a man who relied upon the resources given to him in his humanity, which then applies to us because we too can resist temptation in the way Jesus did. Now, let me give you an illustration that really is, is meant to illustrate the difference between why something could not happen and why something did not happen. And I think it's helpful in, in seeing this in Christ. The, the illustration is of a swimmer who attempts to break the the. Uh, the world's record of the longest continuous swim, which is about 95 miles. I think this was done by a woman a few years ago who swam from Cuba to, to uh, Florida, uh, if I rem am remembering correctly. So around 95 miles. So this person is wanting to break the world's record of the longest continuous swim, and, uh, and he begins training, you know, to do this, kind of like a marathon runner would do. Every day he swims, you know, three, five, seven miles, but then on the weekends he does these longer swims, you know, 12 miles, 15 miles, 17 miles, you know, he keeps pushing it on, on the weekends. And as the weeks go by, the months go by, he's now involved in his weekends on these very long swims, you know, 40 miles, 45 miles. And he notices toward the end of those swims that his muscles are, uh, are a, a bit, uh, you know, cramped just a bit. And he wonders in his attempt to break the world's record with this 95 plus mile swim, uh, is it possible his muscles would cramp and he would drown? So he's talking this over with friends and they decide the best thing to do would be to pr prepare for a boat to be there with him that would travel along, trail along behind him, maybe 30 feet away, close enough to pick him up if there were a problem, uh, but, but uh, far enough back where they, there would be no question of interference. So they agree that's a good thing to do. They make the arrangements for the boat. He continues his preparation. And finally, the day comes that he had in mind uh, to, to, uh, to attempt this, this, uh, this record-breaking swim. Conditions are perfect. And he decides, I'm going to do it. So... He dives in and begins swimming, and he swims, and he swims, and he swims. All the while, the boat is there, 30 feet below, behind him. And amazingly, he did it. He accomplished his goal. He broke the world's record on the longest continuous swim. Okay, now, two questions you might have for the swimmer. First one is this. Why is it in this longest uh, swim that has ever been done, why is it you could not have drowned? Answer, the boat. The boat was there ready to pick you up at any time if there was a problem. Secondly, why is it you did not drown? Notice the boat has nothing to do with this answer. Why is it you did not drown? He swam. He trained, right? He gave himself fully for what he was called to do. And, and the boat is irrelevant to the question, why is it he did not drown? Now, I remember when I taught this one time at seminary, I had a bright student who raised his hand right away and he said, Dr. Ware, I'm not quite sure if the boat didn't help him because it gave him peace of heart, you know, that, that he knew that, that uh, the boat was there and so that, that relieved his mind as he, as, as he conducted this swim. 
And I thought to myself for the first moment, he might have a point there, but then I started thinking like that swimmer. What would that swimmer who has just trained for months and months of months, agonizing training to break the world's record, what would he think about that boat? Is that something hopeful? Oh no, that is his enemy. He touches that boat and it's over. He has failed if he touches that boat. So indeed, he realized he cannot have anything to do with that boat if he is going to succeed in the mission he has been called to do. Do you see how that, how that applies to Christ? He must go to the cross having resisted every temptation as the second Adam, the son of David, as a man in the power of the Spirit. So indeed, he did. And then this, I'm moving on quickly here for time. I probably packed more into this session than I should have. Sorry, Scott, but, you know, I'll move along quickly here. It also helps us see some of the growth and maturity in faith that we see in Christ. So Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 is just an amazing statement. Look at this with me. We read here, Hebrews writes, Although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So th those phrases, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered, what does that mean? And having been made perfect, what does that mean? So here, here's what I, I think the, this text is referring to. When it says he learned obedience from the things that he suffered, it cannot mean he finally learned to obey, having disobeyed so many times previously. It cannot mean that, right? Because just a few verses earlier in Hebrews is where we read, He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So He never sinned. He never disobeyed. So what does that mean? He learned obedience from the things that He suffered. Here's what it is. He learned to, to obey increasingly difficult demands of the Father, preparing Him for the most difficult, the, the, the hardest, the most challenging of any of those demands that would ever come to Him, namely, go to the cross. So in other words, He couldn't do that without the preparation that was required to test His faith. To, to grow, to grow him in his own inner life, to trust the Father through, tempt, through, through, through trials, through uh, afflictions, through suffering that came into his life. The Father ordained these afflictions for the life of Christ so that his faith would grow, so that he would be able, verse 9, he, he would be made perfect and be able to go to the cross. Made perfect meaning made mature, made, made, made fully fully formed faith in him. Not that he ever disbelieved, but he was able to believe yet harder things. And we know this for sure, that when he, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, to go to the cross was really difficult. I mean, you know, crying out three times, Father, if you be willing, let this cup pass from me. Sweating as it were drops of blood. This was really hard. How was he able to do this? Because he had been prepared to do it. So I think back of that, that remarkable 12-year-old boy we thought about earlier. You know, the Pharisees marveled at what he was saying in the temple in Jerusalem. But could that 12-year-old boy have gone to the cross? 
I think the answer is no. He wasn't ready. He, he hadn't been prepared. He had to suffer more. He had to be afflicted more to trust the Father, to obey increasingly difficult things, to prepare Him to go to the cross. So, I mean, it's so instructive, isn't it? Because we realize if He did that with His Son, although He was a Son, look at what He did, the Father. Don't you think that's true for us as well? That the, the Father designs? Boy, this may be a hard word for some of you to accept, but believe me, this, this is biblical. He designs the afflictions and the difficulties, the trials that we face in our lives for the purpose of enabling us to trust Him and grow in our faith, grow in our character, to, to become stronger as those who believe in Him and hope in Him and find our joy in Him. Indeed, those sufferings in life are used by the Lord, designed by the Lord to, to help us grow in, in, in facing the things He has for us. Even in ministry, too, to accomplish things that we wouldn't be able to do if we weren't faithful in the little things earlier, right? Faithfulness in the little things means faithfulness in greater things to come. So, indeed, God uses those sufferings. Okay, now, quickly, moving on. Not only did Jesus rely upon the Spirit in His life and ministry, but then He sent the Spirit to us. And, and, and He does so with authority over the Spirit, reflecting His role as the eternal Son of the Father. So under Roman numeral 4a, while Jesus submitted to the Spirit for the sake of His in incarnational mission, Scripture is clear that the Spirit's role most fundamentally is to elevate, extol, and honor the higher position and authority of the Son. As such, Jesus sends the Spirit who was given to Him by the Father. He does so in order that the Spirit's power on Him might now be on His followers. So you see statements of Jesus sending the Spirit in John 14, 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So notice here that even though the Father sends the Spirit, He sends the Spirit in the name of the Son. That is, to represent the Son, to further the, 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 uh, the teaching of the Son. <coughs> Excuse me, to, to bring to your remembrance what the Son has taught you already. John 15, 26 is a little bit different. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. That is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. So in this verse, the, the primary sender is the Son, whom I will send to you from the Father. Well, how does this work? The, the Spirit being sent by the Father, being sent by the Son, here is a good explanation of it in Acts 2.33. This is uh, Peter's sermon again on the day of Pentecost. He says of Jesus, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth that which you both see and hear. Do you see it there, the order? The, the Spirit is given to the Son by the Father, and I think that giving refers to the Spirit's work in the Son through the whole of His life and ministry. But now Jesus, who had been received the Spirit from the Father, now gives the Spirit to His followers. And that's what happens on the day of Pentecost. So the Father sends the Spirit, but He sends the Spirit through the Son, indicating the Son has 
primacy over and authority over the Spirit as He comes. And you know, in those chapters in John, John 14 to 16, Jesus is telling His disciples uh, something that they did not understand, they did not want to hear, and that is, I'm leaving. They could not comprehend what, what he meant by the fact that he said he was going to be leaving. So look, look with me. John 16, verse 7, Jesus says here, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now stop right there. Think, what would the disciples have thought when they heard those words? They have, they've waited hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. He's now the Messiah. You know, he, he's, he's, he's come to bring them all the promises of God to be fulfilled with them and upon the earth, how could it possibly be to their advantage that he leaves? Well, here's his answer. Verse, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what could be better? Are you listening? What could be better than having Jesus walking by your side? Answer, having the Spirit of Jesus living in your life. Isn't that incredible? It is to your advantage that I go away because I'm going to send the Spirit who has been upon me will be upon you indeed. And then the Spirit when He comes, my goodness, He, he will bear witness to Christ in verse 12, we read, this is in that same little paragraph there, John 16, verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Why do you think the this disciples could not understand, could not bear the teaching that Jesus wanted to give them? I have many more things I want to tell you, but you won't get it. You can't bear them now. Why, why do you suppose they couldn't get it? They didn't have the Spirit yet. I mean, honestly, they didn't even understand the purpose of the death of Christ. You remember when he died and he told them several times, I'm going to die, but then rise again from the dead? Notice the disciples, after the death of Christ, were not camping out by the tomb of Jesus. Can't wait till Sunday. Oh my goodness, it's going to be glorious. We're going to see him raised from the dead. Didn't happen. They're cowering. They just, they could not get it. I mean, they didn't even believe the women when they came and told him, we've seen Jesus. He's been raised from the dead. Oh, you didn't see that. And so they had to go and look for themselves. And, you know, it's just amazing. They could not put it all together, but particularly not until the Spirit came at the day of Pentecost are, are they able now to begin to put things together the right way. So I have many poor things to say to you. You cannot bear them now, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative. But whatever He hears, presumably from me, He will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. Now, isn't that amazing? So, indeed, Jesus uses the same language here that he had used of himself in relation to the Father in John chapter 8. There he said, I do not speak on my own initiative. I speak as the Father tells me. Here, the Spirit will not speak on his own initiative. He will speak as I tell him. He will take of mine and disclose it to you. So indeed, as the Father had authority over the Son, so the Son has authority over the Spirit in His coming. Now, I included verse 15 here also because there's something in verse 15 that is just unbelievably beautiful. 
I, it's just, I mean, it staggers me every time I see it. So after Jesus has just said in verse 14, he will take of mine, he will glorify me, he will take of mine and disclose it to you. Do you know what Jesus worries about right there? Huh, what, when they hear me say, he will take of mine and disclose it to you, those disciples might think that what is mine is exclusively, ultimately mine. But that's not true. Where did I get it from? The Father. So look what he says in verse 15. Right after he says, he will take of mine and disclose it to you, verse 15, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Do you get the point? The humility of Christ here. Humility, acknowledging, yes, he will take of mine, but where did I get it from? From the Father. I don't speak on my own initiative. I speak as the Father tells me. I, I, I know these things because of the Father and His revelation to me. So the humility of Christ in this. But it's very clear the Spirit will glorify Christ. So 1 Corinthians 12, 3 is a great sample text that helps us see this. Paul writes here, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, it isn't merely the words, Jesus is accursed, Jesus is Lord. I just said both of them right now, right? I didn't like saying one of them, but, uh, but I did. I said both of them, right? No, it's, it's, it isn't the words per se. It's the life expression. No one can live a life that says Jesus is accursed and have the Spirit. No one can live a life that says Jesus is Lord and not have the Spirit, because what does the Spirit want to do? What does the Spirit do in the lives of the people in whom He indwells? He honors Christ. And then finally, page four of the handout, it's just clear. You see in so many ways that the purpose of the Spirit is always to put forward the Son. So under number one of that, just to summarize it quickly for you, under number one of that, the Spirit's purpose is to put forward the Son. Think of Scripture itself. This is inspired by the Spirit, right? The Spirit, all, all, uh, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And yet, what is the principal subject of the Bible? Christ, Christ. So indeed, I mean, that's clear in Luke chapter 24. You can read that, those verses later. It's clear that Jesus indicates the whole of the Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings, that's the whole Old Testament, is principally pointing forward to Christ. And so it's an interesting, isn't it? The, the, the Bible then, though written by the Spirit in, in a sense, as He inspired the human authors to write what they did, is not principally about the Spirit. It's not autobiographical. It rather is focusing the spotlight on Christ. Think about evangelism. Uh, Acts 1.8, uh, Brian read this passage at the beginning of our time, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So indeed, what does the Spirit want to do within us? Empower us to proclaim who Christ is. You know, it, when you have hesitancy in talking about Jesus, just ask yourself one question. Do you think the Spirit of God within you wants to move your lips to speak of the glories of Christ? Absolutely. So yield to the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit <coughs> and bear witness of Christ. And then finally, salvation. 
that is brought about in our lives by the Spirit has the focus upon Christ in everything that... <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. <coughs> I'm so sorry. In everything that happens, the focus is upon Christ. We come to Christ because we see the glory of Christ. In our sanctification, we're transformed into the likeness of Christ. <coughs> oh my goodness, this has really hit me. I'm so sorry. <coughs> and then in the end, we will be conformed fully into His character and likeness. So indeed, the Spirit's work in our salvation... Five minutes too long, didn't I? <laughs> Has everything to do with focusing upon Christ. So indeed, may the Spirit work within us and in this congregation that we see Christ exalted. If that happens, you know the Spirit is at work. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this evening, for the joy... <coughs> of looking at the work of the Spirit in Jesus. And we're so thankful that work continues as He works within us as well. Help us, Lord, to be welcome recipients uh, of that Spirit who is within us and long to see His work magnified as we see Jesus Himself glorified through our lives. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.